Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is here. We're back after a week off. And the reason that I took a week off is, as some people may have seen on Twitter, I have finally filed the 2023 NBA Draft Guide. It's going to end up being about 125,000 words, and I needed to take the last week to really just knock it out and finish everything and get it all done so that it would be in a good space for editorial to be able to do some things with it. And for you guys to maybe have like two weeks with it this year, which has often been a problem. Uh, We end up doing it like two days before the draft, three days before the draft. My hope is that early next week or so you guys might be able to have like 10 days with it to really be able to consume it and take a look at it and everything. So with that announcement out of the way, we're back And we're going to be podcasting most days until the NBA draft, at least. Uh, I have a really fun podcast coming up with Andrew Schlecht that we're going to do on this feed that we're going to break down some of the just NBA draft from a person that is knowledgeable, but more of a layman's perspective on it in Andrew's case. Andrew is fantastic, and I certainly don't mean that in any derogatory sense. And I think Andrew knows that I have an immense amount of affection for him, but He will ask the questions, I think, that maybe Adam and I don't ask because we're so in the weeds on it. And I'm literally just going to hand over the show to Andrew and literally have him host the show and just ask me questions and break down some of the things that are happening with the draft. We're also going to do NBA Finals on Wednesday night with Mark Schindler. We're also going to just talk a lot. The only day off for this show is basically tomorrow when I'm going to finally take a day off myself after having worked for, I think, like 80 hours the last six days. So I need some time to decompress a little bit here. I will also have a bunch of stories that go up. I'm doing some dual bylines at The Athletic, everything like that. That's where I've been over the course of the last week or so. That's why I haven't been here. But We're back now. We're ready to gear up for the NBA draft. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the NBA Finals series between the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. Going back to Miami at one-to-one, which, frankly, is a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought that Denver had a pretty real shot to sweep this thing. Uh, But we'll see. Uh, I think that a lot of what Miami showed in Game 2 is both simultaneously really interesting from an X's and O's perspective while also being a question of how much I think they can replicate it a little bit moving forward. Then we're going to talk about NBA draft prospects. We're going to talk about Bilal Koulibaly, an incredible prospect uh, over in France that is really interesting for Metropolitans. Quickly rising up the board, obviously, 
has become one of the most interesting players in this 2023 NBA draft class. Finally, we're going to give some news and notes, including a theory that I have about Amen Thompson that would be a bit of a bummer uh, if it was to come out because I love the Thompson twins. I love them as humans. They seem like just the best human beings, but I kind of want to dive into some of the potential draft range outcomes. Like, look, people that know me know that I watch a lot of poker and it's the World Series of Poker right now. And you try to figure out ranges for potential hands that other players have when you watch poker and when you play poker. So I'm trying to figure out ranges right now for potential outcomes for Amen Thompson. And I'm trying to figure out a number of different things on that front in terms of how that could bear itself out at the end of the day when the NBA draft actually occurs here in 17 days, Adam, something like that, right? No way. That can't be real. 17. That's all we have left. I think we have like 17 days in the 2023 NBA draft cycle, Adam. I think that the draft is on June 22nd this year. They moved it up a week. It's on the earlier side this year, which is great because more than anything, you know what that means? I get like three or four days off of NBA draft of NBA stuff after the draft because it's early and free agency isn't like yeah. just right around the corner. So it's great. I love it so much. <laughs> it means sleep. And Sam, you've already proven yourself to be an absolute fucking madman with all that you've written and all that you continue to do. So like look forward to that sleep, baby. That's going to be great. This is the weird part where like I've done all of the work now and nobody has seen it. So, like, people are like, where has he been? And it's just like, no, I've been, like, you know, going nuts for the last week and a half. It's funny. I was talking to John Rothstein and um, texted him about a couple of things on draft deadline day on May 31st. And obviously, John's thing is we sleep in May. Uh, he, he shot me a we sleep in August. <laughs> so, shout out Rothstein. Uh, just the best. But... Adam, that's five minutes of me talking at you. How are you doing, man? I'm good, Sam. Um, I played basketball today for like an hour. And uh, I realizing how old I am, like I, I can't touch – forget about touching my toes. Like I can't touch my knees right now. I'm yeah, sore. I'm tired. But you know what, man? Like I'm feeling good about where I'm at draft coverage rise right now as well. Uh, just wrapped up scouting report on pretty much everybody that's in my top 40. So – uh, feeling, yeah, feeling like we're, we've got a good handle on the class right now and hoping that in the 17, somehow only 17 days left between now and the draft can throw a few more profiles together, get some really fun stuff in. But, uh, this Kula Bali one that we'll talk about later was one of the last to kind of come across my desk here. And it's a fascinating one. One of the most interesting prospects that I can remember evaluating, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But first, let's talk NBA Finals. So the NBA Finals are currently 1-1, and I don't know about you, so let's start with this. The Miami Heat beat the Denver Nuggets in Denver last night, 111-108. to The Denver Nuggets win game one, 104-93. to it's a fascinating way that game two bore itself out. And to be honest, I didn't watch it until this morning because again, yesterday was a mad dash to try and be able to file the draft guide and get that thing done and get it off of my plate as much as anything. But I think I was just really fascinated by the texture of the game and the way that it 
started with that incredible Miami Heat run with like all of the Max Struess threes and some of the really interesting sets. We're not going to break down tape today necessarily, but I thought that Miami in the first quarter particularly did a really good job of kind of playing against Denver's over-aggression in ball screen scenarios. Particularly, there's one play that stands out in my mind where they ran like an empty side ball screen between, I think it was like Gabe Vincent and Max Struess. And Struess essentially set a ghost screen and just shot to the corner immediately. And it was really, really smart and intelligent because Denver is playing oftentimes like blitzing and playing at the level in some of those small, small screen actions. And just little things like that, I think, created real open opportunities for the Miami Heat, particularly from beyond the three-point line. I know there was a lot of consternation about the fact that Miami shot 17 for 35 from three. They shot 48% from three. They're not going to do that again. I'll be honest with you. I, I thought that like Denver's defense was uh, merely okay in terms of pre- preventing open three-pointers in that game. I didn't think that they did as well as they did in game one in that regard. And I felt like there were more, this is anecdotal. I don't know necessarily based if the numbers will bear that out, but it felt like to me, there were more open in rhythm threes for Miami in this game. And I think that Denver is going to have to figure that out as much as anything moving forward here. Yeah. I think against Miami, you know, everyone wants to talk about, you know, it's one game and they, man, they've been shooting over 40% from three this whole playoffs. They have guys that are really stepping up and just drilling shot after shot after shot. So you kind of have to run them off the line a little bit more and be really aggressive, not just when you're playing at the point of attack against ball screens or things like that, but in chasing shooters off the line and making them take those one dribble sidesteps, one dribble pull-ups or repenetrate it, that you can rotate around and scramble off of them. You just can't give up wide open catch and shoot threes. Totally agree. And I think that, there are a few interesting things that are happening here. And I think that a big piece of it that I kind of want to talk about is Bam at a bio. And the reason that I think Bam is a bit more of a difficult assignment for Nikola Jokic offensively than Anthony Davis was, for instance. And frankly, I think Anthony Davis is probably a better offensive player in terms of like being able to produce points than Bam at a bio is. But I think the challenges that Bam presents in terms of the ability to actually handle the ball and pass and play make is really, really intriguing. And I think that part of this is based off of what Miami is doing kind of on the backside. One way that Denver tends to mitigate Nikola Jokic's, you know, foot speed concerns oftentimes whenever he is pulled away from the basket, either by centers or in ball screen scenarios when they play more at the level, is that in order to make it so he can't get the corner turned on him, they try and typically have a man dig in or stunt in from the weak side or from the strong side as a ball handler if the guy is going strong side as a drive to try and arrest that guy's momentum so that it gives Jokic just a little bit more space to cover, right? They typically have that like wing guy hug into the paint and then they try and rotate around it, right? In this case, what Miami did, I think was really interesting. They basically started on every single time that, you know, Jokic was pulled away from the basket at the top of the key. They did an exchange on 
either the strong side or the weak side, depending on where the drive was coming. So that as that drive is coming, you're exchanging with the wing defender going down to the corner and he's going backward now instead of being able to stunt into the paint. If he stunts while he's going backward, you're probably going to end up with a wide open corner three, or in that case, you're going to end up with a throw to the corner and then a reversal up to the wing where you're then forcing Jokic to close out on a shooter. And that's not really what you want. And one thing there, Sam, that I noticed was in game one, when Miami was a little bit smaller, Denver would switch off ball, that they would stay in those gaps and pass off those exchanges or assignments. Miami goes a little bit bigger with Kevin Love and Adebayo next to each other in game two. A little more concerned from Denver about that off ball switching, which allows the exchanges to to really have an impact. Yeah, it's 100% right. And I'm really, really intrigued by what Denver does now to adjust off of those exchanges between the wing and the corner man, because that I think is a really, really critical thing for them to figure out in terms of being able to stop the dribble penetration that eventually gets them into any sort of rotation. Right. Uh, And eventually in Miami's case, when you're surrounding Bam Adebayo with four shooters, which they basically do at all times, it does really create an interesting dynamic. Now, there's obviously like a lot of question here moving forward about like Tyler hero and Tyler hero's role. I, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, like, do we think Tyler hero returns? Cause I actually think like having Tyler hero as another shooter could be valuable. Although it seems like, you know, based on reporting, like he did have some soreness still uh, in that hand, which makes you think like if he can't shoot, maybe, he might not be valuable. Like he needs to be able to shoot 40%. If he can shoot 40%, he's probably valuable. If not, then it's a real question. And by the way, hand injuries tend to mess with your ball handling more than your shooting a lot as well. So if he can handle the ball, he might be valuable, but if he can't, I don't know. Well, and, and beyond that, I think they mess with you a little bit from a like taking contact and having to brace yourself on your fall kind of perspective. So if you are coming off of a hand injury, you might tend to be more of a jump shooter, more of a catch and shoot guy. And, you know, if you're Miami and you're looking at the guys who've been impactful for them on this playoff run, the guys who have been are all really good catch and shoot guys. Like whose minutes are you going to bump and take away in order to get Tyler hero back in there? That's not meant to be disrespect to hero. Great season, really, really good player, but this team is really clicking right now to the point where I don't know whose minutes you would take away from and give them to hero. Yeah, no, I think that's actually really right. I don't know that I would want to take any of these dudes out of the lineup. They are, fighting and scratching and clawing on defense. And I think they did a really good job defensively in that series, in that game as well. You know, if you can hold Denver in a second half to 51 points like they did, I think you deserve a lot of credit at the end of the day. And what what they're doing is they're essentially staying home on all of the shooters and just forcing Nikola Jokic to beat them. And like Nikola Jokic is incredible. Like they didn't slow down Jokic at all. He had 41 points in this game and shot 16 of 28. And like there was a stretch there in the second quarter where they had Cody Zeller on him or like late in the first quarter as well. And it was just like, this is, this is laughable what Nikola Jokic is doing right now. But I think that I like that strategic 
outcome a little bit better because you're taking away some of the sprayed three point options that are typically available to Jokic. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's a math equation here. You bank on your team making more threes than the twos that Jokic is going to make. Yep. I think that's right. I mean, what have you seen from Denver's offense thus far that has impressed you or maybe made you feel like it's a little bit bogged down right now to an extent? Because it feels like to me they made – they kind of – Denver wants the roles to be flipped. They want Jamal Murray to be the scoring option and they want Nikola Jokic to be the facilitator and you know basketball supercomputer super that we've all come to know and love. It feels like to me Miami is trying to flip that and make it so Jamal has to make the decisions yeah. and Jokic is the one that is scoring and playing. And Jokic is so good that he can do that, but I wonder if we're getting the same value out of Jamal Murray on Denver's side is what we typically do. So game one is always a feeling out process. And what Miami really took away from that is, hey, we can't really go small against these guys because Aaron Gordon, whoever is that, like they're just going to find ways to punish us for being so small. So we see Kevin Love reinserted into the starting lineup in game two and a lot more aggression on Jamal Murray, trying to get the ball out of his hands, uh, again, make him more of a passer in that regard and see if Jokic either picks up the slack as a scorer or just find a way for somebody else to beat you. And I thought that was a really interesting formula for them. I would love to see more dribble handoffs for Murray to try to get him the ball on the move, more empty side two-man games between the two of them where Jokic is coming to initiate that handoff or or set a ball screen for Murray so that it's open for backdoors or slips for Jokic that turn into post-ups. There are a lot of adjustments that Malone can make in that regard. And again, I think Denver... They surround those guys with floor spacing. They have some good slashers and and smart players who know how and when to cut off of that empty side two-man game. I think they'll be fine, whatever it is that they choose to do. Just curious to see what Malone decides is the next button to hit. Yep. Okay, so here's the question. Have you seen enough from Miami in terms of just like being tough at the point of attack and being physical with Nikola Jokic and being everything that they have had to do to keep Denver's offense, you know, uh, not shut down, but like keep them at right around maybe that, you know, I guess that the, I guess they were at like maybe 109, 111 offensive rating is what it felt like to me. So like a little bit below what their standard is, but not shutting them down by any stretch. Have you seen enough from Miami that makes you believe that they can continue to outscore Denver and get real? You have to get into that 110 to 115 range if you're going to beat Denver, in my opinion. Do you think they can do that and continue to shut down Denver on offense? I don't think that they shut down Denver. I think that you just find ways to slow them enough that you can outscore them. You know, I've said this for a long time. I think the way to beat Denver is to outscore them a little bit, to throw enough different defenses and coverages so that you make them just think a little bit more. I think this formula that they tapped into in game two of, you know, take the ball out of Murray's hands a little bit more and see if it's just Jokic creating everything that allows you to have a lot of success and then you just have to be hot from three. And again, Miami has the right personnel, and, and they've proven it over the, the last two months. They can stay hot from three. They have the formula down. They just need to execute it time and time again. And within that formula, 
make the right tinkering adjustments to know what to do when, whether that's going zone, finding ways to protect Cody Zeller in some of his minutes a little bit more. Like I thought Christian Brown was good for Denver in the first really half. Good. And then Miami yep. found ways to go at him a little bit more and play him off the floor inexperience wise in that second half. So continuing to just hit the right buttons with what is presented to you is going to be a key in this series for Miami. If there's one guy in the world we know can do it, it's Spo. Here's the other thing too. I think that Miami is kind of kind of in game two, at least I shouldn't say this in game one, because game one was Denver's like, they just absolutely look, that was a 10 point game, I think by our 11 point game by the end of it, but Denver dictated and controlled that game from the tip. It felt like in game two, it felt like Miami did a good job of making it more on Miami's terms in terms of playing physically. And then in terms of forcing Denver into more difficult circumstances uh, on the defensive end at the very least, Michael Malone is a great defensive coach. My guess is that he's going to figure out some answers here moving forward in terms of just figuring out who to help, how do we attack X outs here? How do we attack uh, closeouts onto these shooters? Do we just have to stay home? Do we just trust, frankly, like Nikola Jokic one-on-one against Bam Adebayo, like constantly? I think that's like a real question for them. Like, do you just buy Nikola Jokic defensively to be able to shut down Bam Adebayo as a scorer in a real way? I thought that in game one, they did a really good job. I know that Bam ended up with 26 points and 13 rebounds and five assists and everything, but like Bam had to work for those. He ended up, I think, with 25 shots. He had, you know, I'm looking through, he had a turnover. Like it, it was hard for Bam in game one, I thought. It was really, really hard. I thought Jokic did a great job. In game two, it felt like they let Bam be a little bit more of a facilitator and kind of helped off a little bit more. I would be interested to see if they just let Jokic go and say, you have to shut this guy down. The only issue there is if you do that, you're probably getting some diminishing returns on Jokic's offense just in terms of like being tired. And that's not a slight on Jokic Uh, in terms of his conditioning. It's just genuinely like if you're expending more effort on defense, you probably have to expend a little bit more on offense or you might not have as much to expend on offense. Yeah. And and I'm spitballing here, Sam. I I don't know if, if I even agree with this idea, but could you find a way to cross match and have Jokic guard Kevin Love and then put Aaron Gordon on Bam? Switch out a lot of ball screens. Jokic scram in from the weak side, similar to what they did against Phoenix, where he's more of a, a helper. And then if Bam tries to mismatch post someone off of the switch, that's when Jokic rolls to the lane and they switch out weak side. I don't mind it, but then what do you do on Jimmy consistently? Yeah. That, that probably then involves playing Bruce Brown instead of Michael Porter Jr., right? Probably. Although, I don't think Porter's been that bad. Like, his rear view contests are fine. If he's he, he uses his length well once he gets beat, but he does get beat too much. Yeah, I mean, so, so then you'd be cross-matching probably Contavious Caldwell-Pope onto Butler, and then you'd be moving Michael Porter Jr. up to, like – you know, whoever's on the court of Caleb Martin and Max Struess kind of like that probably works a little bit. That that probably works to be honest, but then you're involving Porter and a lot of exchanges with Struess, which is a little bit of concern as well. Um, Well, and and it worked against Phoenix because they had another non-shooter on the floor next to Aiden 
And I don't know if Miami necessarily has that. A non-shooter you can put Jokic on. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's hmm. it's interesting. This, this is, these are part of the problems that Miami poses for you as a tough, physical, strong team that also can really shoot. Like finding guys like this that are tough, physical, strong, and can shoot and can space the floor around like a genuine creator. It's why those, those guys are very, very valuable in the NBA draft. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think Miami has proven a little bit more to me. I still don't really think they have the guns to win, but I'm at the point now where I, like genuinely, I thought that there was a chance this would be a sweep. I, I thought it would be very, very, very difficult for Miami to stop them on offense uh, because I thought that Denver would just be able to post these guys and let Jokic go to town essentially, and then be able to spray shots, spray out to shooters across the court and everything. And I thought they'd get consistent paint penetration by doing that, by getting the ball into Jokic particularly, and then being able to make it work that way. They haven't been great on offense so far. Miami's done like a pretty good job against them on offense. Miami's Um, good. They're good. uh, Eric Spolstra is like – if. If Eric Spolstra pulls this off, we need to talk about Eric Spolstra as like a top five coach of all time. If he's not already, absolutely have to. Yeah, he's yeah, he's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's no disrespect to these players. Like the players have been phenomenal for the Miami Heat and they deserve an immense amount of credit. But a lot of what they're doing in terms of like bogging down Denver's offense is like scheme related. Yeah, and, and everything they try works. Yeah. Like, t- look at the entirety of the postseason. Every rotation, every lineup change, every timely switch to zone defense, every play that they dial up to try to get somebody a shot, it always works. 100%. And uh, by the way, Denver only had 18 transition points in that game, according to ESPN. That's like not a great number for them. They they outscored Miami 18 to five in transition points, but Denver's typically like up in the twenties in terms of points out on the break. Miami's doing a really good job of getting back and making them work for offense. Uh, If you know, everyone knows like, you know, the Matt Ishbia moment, right? Like that comes from every time that there is like a loose ball that goes out of bounds where it's Denver's ball they try and get it as soon as possible and go and sprint in order to try and create these odd man opportunities. And I think that Miami being willing to just like completely give up the offensive glass in a pretty substantial way, get back in transition as much as they can be athletic and aggressive in terms of on ball defensive prowess. In addition to some of the things they're doing, pulling Nikola Jokic away from the rim and forcing him to guard in space it's it's really smart. It's really, really sharp stuff for Miami, I think. I, I'm just like blown away by this team. I, I love Miami so much. And I still think they probably lose in six. Uh, I think Denver is just way too talented. I love Miami, man. They, they, I do they, too. They do everything you ask of them. And they they always find a way. They always find a way. It It really is like a genuine talent deficiency here, I think. Like, 
if these dudes pull this off, this is they will have beaten Milwaukee with like Giannis Antetokounmpo multiple time MVP. They will have beaten like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown multiple time like all NBA guys. Jason Tatum will be a top three contender for MVP at some point uh, down the road. And they will have beaten Jokic multiple time MVP. I mean, this is a team that like, seriously, you go back through history, right? And I've said this before on the show, but I think it's worth noting in regard to the Miami Heat. You go back all the way through history. The best player on title teams. Those guys tend to be like top 20 players of all time. Top 30, maybe, let's say. I love Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler is like not quite that, in my opinion. Like he's he's 100% a top 75 player if they win this title. And I think there's a real case for him there anyway. But he's like not quite at that level in terms of like accomplishments, accolades. We're talking like these top 30 players of all time, like top 25 players of all time. Dirk Nowitzki is so good. Like Dirk Nowitzki is unbelievably good. There is a case that Dirk Nowitzki is like the worst best player on a title team in like the last God knows how many years, probably 30, 30 to 40 years. Wow, that is some Chauncey Billups respect right there, my friend. Outside of the Detroit Pistons, <laughs> who are the outlier in this. Yeah. The 2004 yeah. Detroit Pistons are the outlier and Miami would be a similar outlier in this regard. They have Jimmy Butler. I think Jimmy Butler is a better player all time than Chauncey Billups. But like that Detroit Pistons team is the only outlier when it comes to like best players of all time tending to be the best players on title teams. Uh, And you could say like maybe that's like a little bit of selection bias, right? Like they become the best players of all time because they lead their teams to titles. But even so that like Again, Dirk is like among the worst of those guys. Dirk is a 14-time All-Star that made 12 All-NBA teams. Yeah. And he he's like one of the guys that like isn't among the best. Like you go through. So last year, Golden State Warriors, Stephen Curry. Milwaukee Bucks with Giannis. Giannis is going to be a top, you know, 20 to 25 player of all time, if not higher. Uh, LeBron James with the Lakers. Kawhi Leonard with the Raptors. Kawhi was just kind of befallen by injuries on some level. I I don't know. Like, I think that his ceiling was probably in that top 25 range, right? Makes sense to me. Probably would have been that if not for the injuries. Uh, You know, the three warrior or the four, you know, Warriors and Cavs rounds. Those are Steph Curry and LeBron years. San Antonio Spurs, Tim Duncan, Miami Heat, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. Uh, Dallas Mavericks, Dirk Nowitzki, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, Lakers, those Kobe Bryant, uh, Boston Celtics in 2008. That's Kevin Garnett, 2007, San Antonio Spurs. That is Tim Duncan, 2000, 2005 and 2003 Spurs. Those are both Tim Duncan as well. Uh, 2006 Miami heat. That's Dwayne Wade, the outlier with the Pistons in 2004, 2002, 2001, 2000 Los Angeles Lakers. That is Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant 1999. That's Tim Duncan. Uh, the, you know, bulls 
you know, six in eight years. That's all Michael Jordan, 1994, 95. That's Rockets. That's Akeem Olajuwon. Uh, 89 and 90 is Isaiah Thomas. 87 and 88 is Magic Johnson. 86 is Larry Bird. 85 is Magic Johnson. 84 is Larry Bird. 83, I believe, if I remember correctly, is going to be uh, Dr. J. Dr. J. Uh, Philly, and then, yeah. Yep. 82 is going to be – is that that's Kareem, right? And I didn't even mention Kareem when I say that um, Magic Johnson's the best player. Uh, 82, I believe, is also Magic Johnson winning the finals MVP when he is playing center because Kareem isn't there, right? So, yeah, I feel like, you know, we're, we're back into the 80, we're back at like 1980 at this point, essentially. Which, as I'm being told, is over 40 years ago. I, I still struggle to compute that yeah. myself. And but Al- that's... Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. And outside of that Detroit Pistons team, the three worst players to win titles are probably Isaiah Thomas, Dirk Nowitzki, Kevin Garnett is the best player on the team, right? Yeah. Think about how good those dudes are. Yeah. <laughs> Think about how great those players are. It's unbelievable. What Miami is doing is like impossible on some level. They deserve an immense amount of credit. And I think Eric Spolster deserves an immense amount of credit. Uh, I I do think that Denver is the more likely team to win, but we shall see. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to talk about Bilal Koulibaly, one of the more interesting 2023 NBA draft prospects. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. 
Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, Adam, we're back. Let's talk Bilal Kulabali. All right. Kulabali is one of the most interesting draft prospects I've evaluated in at least the last five years. He is coming off of his best game of the season, and he's had a few of these now. Uh, it's like once every other game now, it feels like he's like one-upping himself and having his best game of the season. Uh, he's playing against Osvel, who is one of the best teams in Europe, essentially. He had 16 points, four assists, two steals, if I remember correctly, yeah. uh, in this game against Osvel. And the thing about what he is doing is that the thing that stood out most to me about his game was that he did most of it in that game in half-court settings. Mm -hmm. He ran a couple of ball screens. He threw a live dribble, like, you know, almost like 20-foot pocket pass, essentially, to like a cutter uh, at the baseline. It's not really a pocket pass. It's sort of a pocket pass. Um, He threw... He like drove from the top of the key twice. Like he rejected a ball screen one time and drove from the top of the key to score. He attacked a closeout one time. It's the driving in the half court stuff that I think stands out most to me in terms of the very impressive nature of his game that we hadn't seen before with Metropolitans. If you actually go through like so again i've done the draft guide deep dive on Kulabali at this point if you go through his half court usage with metropolitans coming into this series against osvel he'd taken just 78 field goal attempts in about 560 minutes in half court settings that's like 5.1 per 36 minutes that's essentially like Isaac Okoro level with the Cavs production like Isaac Okoro I think averaged 5.6 or 5.8 half court field goal attempts per game this season with Cleveland I think PJ Tucker was at like 4.2 or so if I remember correctly when I did that math that's the kind of usage that we've been talking about with Koulibaly in the half court up until this point. If you go and you look at some of his youth tape, which I, I believe you did, right? I, I did. told you yep. that there's some interesting yep. stuff there. Yep. He lives in the paint. Like he is an awesome driver there. Doesn't have like a lot of like craft or anything like that, but 
is so athletic and is so long and has such, you know, long strides and a first step and like real body control and balance that he just lives there uh, at that level and can actually showcase some real ability to handle the ball. There's also a game on what I believe was referred to as the Axis Tour um, or maybe the Axe Tour. I can't remember what it was where they played Bronny James and a team of like California kids or whatever. Uh, I think they were called like California Club in Koulibaly dropped 25 points in that game as well and was like very good. So when he's playing against guys that are his age, you can see some of the like vision for what he can be long-term. Why I've been a bit slower to react on him is because like he's one of those classic players that for his Metropolitan's time at least, you can make a four minute highlight video of him and he looks like he should go fifth in the draft, like undeniably. But if you watch full games, it was not as impressive. It it just wasn't like, it was again, like the half court usage was like equivalent to Isaac Okoro half court usage with the Cavs. There'd be flashes every game, but like it'd be 20 minutes a night. And for 17 of those minutes, like he was sort of invisible. He'd make some high level plays defensively and do stuff like that. But it was a little bit more invisible than what you want. The flashes in this Osvel series are totally different. And they are the things that I've been waiting for and I've been looking for. Adam, I've talked now for five minutes about him. What do you think of Bilal Kulabali? So I, I think the the way that you frame this is really important, right? Really long, athletic, like power slasher type of player. And when he's going against guys his own age who, who aren't grown-ass men and physically developed, he just overwhelms them. He lives in the lane. He doesn't have much polish to his game. He just slashes through the defense, puts his shoulder down, and barrels his way to the rim and gets the result that he wants. And averaged over 20 a game playing at the lower levels in France before getting the call up to Metropolitans. Yeah. It's so hard to know the context of, is this just a kid who is playing with the adults now and has to give up everything in his role and, and doesn't really know how to fit in yet. So he barely takes any shots and he's not going to be the best ball handler. So he's not getting that role on a good team or is he just not really capable of doing that stuff against bigger, faster, stronger guys, better athletes? And as time has gone on and we're getting into the playoffs, we're starting to see that it's a little bit more the former, that he's still capable of doing all of these things, that there is a little bit of a secondary playmaker, like downhill slasher. Hey, I don't care if you go underneath the screen because I can't shoot. I'm still going to get a paint touch out of this anyway. He has that to him in ways that he wasn't consistently showing. I still have concerns. I'm not quite lottery with Koulibaly right now, but I am probably top 20 on him just because the tools are so immense and the trajectory that he's been on the last several months, it's hard not to be really optimistic about it. But I do have reservations for why I don't think I have him as like a top 14, 15 guy. So I do. I have him at 12. I'll share that and I'll, I'll kind of share what I wrote in the draft guide about him just in terms of like where, where I am on him overall. I can't remember a prospect that has this much, just like immense, like raw, unfinished, like untapped upside 
while also being like such a question mark and like such a low usage player to where I, I don't think there's a prospect in this draft that has a wider gap in terms of like what his ceiling could be and what the floor could be. Yeah. Right. Like the ceiling is that the shooting is like completely real, which by the way, like in Espoirs, he shot 32% from three. Espoirs is the under 21 French league. Um, He shot 32% from three. Some of those on pull-ups, you know, the shots, the shot um, overall was a little bit, the shot volume and degree of difficulty was a little bit harder there. So you, you wouldn't expect it to be as high as it is for Metropolitans. He's currently shooting 38% for Metropolitans on 1.3 attempts per game. Shooting 61% from the line, shooting shot 76% from the line uh, with the spars. I, I actually believe that he can shoot free throws. I'm not real worried about that. I think there is like real touch here is what I'm saying. And on top of that, you have this incredible frame, six foot six, six foot seven, seven foot two wingspan, yoked, like twitchy as hell, uh, all sorts of body control balance. Like this is a way different deal than like Sekou Dumbuya. Like Sekou was like six, seven, had like a six, 10 wingspan, was kind of interesting, could do a few things, was not as good. Right. Just wasn't as interesting as what Bilal is. Seku went like 15 or whatever, because he was like a man of mystery and teams were intrigued and all of that stuff. Bilal is way more interesting in terms of just like being able to handle the ball, being able to play with real skill, being able to play uh, at lower levels, at least with a degree of production. Does that mean that like if the shooting doesn't translate and the handle doesn't tighten up, that like he he still won't be a liability on offense? Because he right. he would be he would. in that circumstance. If he is a 34% three-point shooter, which by the way, like you go back through his history, you know, shot 20.9% from three last year uh in the Espoirs League. 32% this season. He he might be like a 32 to 34% three-point shooter and is on a low small sample hot run right now. Or he might be getting better. That's the thing about this. Bilal Koulibaly is like an incredible informed bet that you're making uh on all of this. And this is where draft philosophy like totally comes into play. Yeah. I'm like willing to bet on it. I am like, I I would take him the lottery. I think that he's just fascinating enough to where I would do it. And part of that draft philosophy to me is like something I've been thinking about a little bit. And again, world series of poker. I've been watching poker. I've been like thinking about the way that you win tournaments in poker, right? You have to take calculated risks. You can't win tournaments just by playing like, you know, game theory optimal, sound strategy uh, every single hand. You have to take calculated bets. That's why you see more like, you know, coin flips where somebody gets it in with ace king versus eights in tournaments than you do in cash games, right? Because 
in tournaments, which is a lot more applicable to an to like an NBA environment where you're playing in a tournament, you're playing against other people in trying to maximize your potential upside, which is eventually winning the tournament. And to do that, you have to take informed gambles. Frankly, if you're not like losing tournaments in poker, like because you're just playing, if you're cashing every time at 20th out of a hundred people, right. You're not making as much money as you can. If you cash three times and win one of those tournaments, because you've taken an informed gamble like this. Bilal Kulabali is like an informed gamble in a real substantial way where you're frankly, like you're racing. This is like an ace King versus eights situation. Like this is a coin flip situation. It might really work. It might not work, but if it works, you're doubling up and you're in the chip lead essentially of a tournament. I think that's a good way of, of phrasing it here. Um, I tend to be a little bit more reserved in some regards of not wanting to take that major high upside swing. And I think for me, it comes down to philosophically who or where I would want to take that swing on. And I would want the safety net of having a guy who can turn into a role-playing shooter. To me, that's always an appealing safety net to kind of have. I don't buy the shot with Koulibaly. I know the growth is there in terms of numbers. It's really slow. It's super stiff. He's got no translatability to anything off the bounce. Like his pull-up jumper numbers are absolutely horrendous. His unable to stop his body mechanics from floating side to side. His runner has no touch to it whatsoever. Like I see a little bit of finishing with both hands near the rim. I was really impressed this weekend against Osvell. Like his left, he had like three or four finishes with his left hand. But I think that he lacks wiggle with his last step. He relies on either dunking because he's just that much more athletic on guys or Euro stepping around contact and then like flinging up some inside hand, like really low. Like he's, he's got to get his layups a little bit higher because he is long and he doesn't use that. So there's just, there's so much to clean up from a scoring standpoint that if I don't buy the shot in general, I don't have that safety net to fall back on in terms of being a good scalable role player. And this is something that I'm writing about, talking about a lot this week. It's the type, the archetype that has given me the most problems the last several years. These really raw, yeah. athletic, non-shooting wings. Because you either so buy into the athleticism and the defense, or you so buy into some of the intangibles that they bring of maybe he's just going to be that one guy that overcomes the trends here. Well, it's, it's a great question. Let's dive into some of these guys that have gone through this in the last 20, you know, let's talk, let's say from 15 on downward, right. Uh, Guys that have been taken that were wings that couldn't shoot that were freshmen, right. Sure. Jalen Johnson looks like he might be a hit for Atlanta possibly Uh, has a lot more ball skills than a lot of these guys as well, though, Uh, you know, grew up as a point guard. You know, it's a little bit different. Keon Johnson at 21, that looks like a miss. Uh, Josh Christopher has always been a little bit higher level of a shooter, I think, than some of these archetypes. But honestly, I think Josh Christopher is kind of a miss. Um, I know that he's had some moments with Houston. And I think he's more of a guard by nature. Also more of a guard. Fair point. So bigger wings. 
you know, like you keep going through in terms of these younger guys, like JT Thor, I guess like yep. sort of counts, but he's more of a big to me. Uh, not, not really a, a guy that has worked out at this point, at least. Going back to 2020 now, Josh Green is a wing. I think has really improved the shot over the last couple of years. Probably going to be a hit, I would say, at number 18 overall. Uh, let's see here. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, you know, Jaden McDaniels had some shooting questions, but Jaden also yeah. entered in terms of being able to, you know, create shots at a higher level when he was younger. Uh, let's see here. More freshmen, more freshmen. I don't have any there. Let's go to 2019. Romeo Langford at 14 was someone who had real shooting questions. That's a miss. Uh, Seku Dumbuya wing with shooting questions. That's a miss. Let's see here. Nasir Little got a second contract, but probably just going to be more of a rotation guy. Happy to get him at 25. But, you know, people had him ranked in the lottery in that draft, and it doesn't look like he's going to be worth a lottery pick in that draft at the very least. Let's see. Keldon Johnson had shooting questions. That has worked out really well. Uh, Let's go back to 2018 now. 2018, Troy Brown, rotation player, probably not what you want with the 15th overall pick. Zaire Smith. Uh, probably more of a guard size, unfortunately. Yeah, Lonnie Walker, more of a guard size player. It is interesting that NBA teams are becoming more intrigued by these guys, though. It feels like. Well, and, and, anything. and Sam, and it's not just these freshmen sometimes, too, right? Like these yeah. like really high defensive ceiling raw wings. Like I'm thinking Isaac Okoro. I'm thinking Matisse Thibel. Maybe in some regard, like the bigger guys like Brandon Clark or Kai Jones. Yeah. And look, like you can fall in love with a guy's defense and he can really hit on that end. He can be a great athlete. But how many playoff series and years in a row are we watching these guys, the Jared Vanderbilts and Isaac Okoros of the world, get played off the floor by the end of the series? The shooting is the safety net on offense. And if yep. you're going to overlook that with Koulibaly, not to say he can't improve. I think he can. But if you if you don't love the shooting and you're overlooking it, you're either absolutely betting on these offensive tools that we've seen over the last three weeks predominantly and at yep. lower levels of basketball, or you just think that he's so athletic and so good on defense that it's not going to matter. I don't think the latter is a great argument to make because we've seen guys who have those tools get played off the floor in the playoffs regardless. And I don't think that I buy into the former enough due to like, I I don't love his passing feel. I've already mentioned some of my complaints with the the touch and some things like, yeah, I'm I'm not there. I'm not. That's the thing I'm struggling with is judging his feel. And I've probably seen more of his youth tape than most people have. I would imagine at this point, just because I've, got my hands on some of it um i've i'm struggling to figure out what his feel for the game is negative assist turnover ratio guy uh in the Aspars league not a guy that has like a super tight handle and like feels like he knows 
I don't know. There are moments where I think he like really knows how to play, but then like a lot of those tend to come in like preordained read situations where yep. it's like a back cut to yep. the basket. It's really interesting. It's really, really interesting to watch Bilal Koulibaly. And uh, he's I, young. Like he's so young. So yeah, and a late bloomer physically yes. as well is a big piece of this too. Um yeah, I ended up with him as a lottery grade because again, my philosophy is that I want to take as many of these informed bets as I can in that range uh, that give me a real chance to spike my, you know, growth as an organization. Sure. But I couldn't get them like into the tier with, you know, Taylor Hendricks, Jairus Walker, all those guys, not even a little bit, like just couldn't get there at the end well, of the day. And and um, you're higher on Leonard Miller than I am too, for some of the similar reasons, like tons totally. of tools, tons of athletic stuff. Like I think Leonard's got more touch than Koulibaly, but like I need the shooting as a safety net. Uh, maybe I'm watching too much Miami heat the last few weeks here, but like, yeah. I, I think shooting really, really matters. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay. Last thing here. I want to run a scenario by you. Cam Whitmore, uh, so far, when you talk to NBA teams, has been the guy that I think has probably moved himself from the 6 to 10 range into, like, the top 5 range, essentially. Let's say it. Let's call it that. As someone that has a real shot to go in that range. His pro day was better than any pro day this season among scouts I've talked to that were there, NBA executives, GMs that I've talked to that were there. They were most impressed with Whitmore's pro day, or at least the feedback on Whitmore's Whitmore's pro day was better than any feedback I've gotten on any other pro day to this point. I would say Derek Lively was number two. Let's say one of these teams in the top three, or two through four range, Charlotte, Portland, Houston. Let's say one of those four teams takes Cam Whitmore instead of a men Thompson. Okay. So let's say Brandon Miller goes to Scoot Henderson goes three. Cam Whitmore goes four. Makes sense. I think that's like a very possible outcome. I'm not yep. saying that that's going to happen. I'm saying that's a very plausible outcome. Yep. Where does a men Thompson go on draft night? So, yeah, that's what I'm struggling with, is trying to find the floor, right? Detroit took Jaden Ivey last year, and they already have Cade Cunningham. Those guys are ball handlers. You have to put the ball in Amen Thompson's hands. I have real questions as to whether or not Detroit would have interest in drafting Amen Thompson. Number six, Orlando. Orlando just has like a lot of non-shooters or like he fits Orlando's type in a big way. And theoretically, if you don't believe in Markel Fultz, they could use like a higher upside swing at lead guard, right? On the board maybe, but, and he ticks like length, athleticism, great worker, you know, great kid, competitive mindset. He ticks a lot of their boxes. I don't think you can rule him out at six. Sure but he doesn't tick the shooting box, which is arguably the thing that they need most. I'm with you. 
Number seven is Indiana. You have Tyrese Halliburton there already. I think Halliburton and Thompson are interesting in terms of being able to play together, but that takes the ball out of Halliburton's hands more. And I don't know that I want to do that necessarily on a board for them. I might have Jarris Walker ahead. So then you get to Washington, Washington has a new GM. We have no idea what they're doing. Right. Like that's the biggest mystery box for teams across the league in the top 10 right now, just because we don't know. Like it's not that they're hiding anything. It's just that we new front office regime there. Right. Number nine, Utah, Utah probably takes them. Right. I think so. Like at the end of the day, like that, that's the, that's the floor. That's the floor I would think is probably Utah, but I've been trying to figure out that piece of it. And obviously somebody could move up for him. Like a, a team could call Orlando at six and go, or a team could call Detroit at five and go, we will give you X, Y, and Z because we believe Amen Thompson is like this unbelievable player, has incredible upside. We want to make sure that we get him on draft night. I don't know. And by the way, like, how confident are you in Asar Thompson, Thompson's jump shot? No, I'm not at all. Neither am I. I don't know why this narrative has started that like he is a drastically better shooter than Amon Thompson. It, it, it's just because he had a spike at the right time at the end of the season. And look, we, we as a collective like amateur homemade scouting group just view a peak at the end of the season as positive progression every single time. And it's not always that way. Like just getting lucky and making a few more of your shots at the end of the season doesn't mean you've magically figured it out. And now you're just going to keep shooting 36% from three, the rest of your career. Like, no, I I am not in on a sore Thompson shot. I'm not. Yeah. I I think it's cleaner. Like I I do think it's a better looking shot, but like synergy has 24 shots for them. Uh, or 24 games this year of their sample size, you know, the international tours and the OTE games and things like that. Right. And some of the high school games that they played, etc. He shot 30% on pull-ups and shot 33.8% on catch and shoot threes. Uh, if you look at his half court numbers, he shot 36% from the field in like half court settings this year. Yep. Yep. That's like quite poor. <laughs> yep. Yes. It Especially is. at that level where they were two and a half years older, probably than the average player. Two years older, maybe let's say than the average player. And again, like I completely buy the athletic tools. I completely buy the human beings involved, which is why I'm like, I still have like a star in the top 10 and like, I'm, I'm good with it. And I still have, I'm in it. Number five. Like I, I really like a men Thompson and I really like a star Thompson. Again, though, these kids are informed bets. They are not like, there's no certainty with Thompson twins in my opinion. And that's going to lead to my question for you right now, Sam, because let's do it. I get to put you on the spot. Who's a better athlete, Asar Thompson or Bilal Koulibaly? Oh, not a question I've thought about until this moment. 
I think that functionally, Kulabali's length probably helps him a little bit more. I still think Asar is probably a more twitch. It's probably cool. No, it's probably Asar. It's pro- <laughs> athletically, it's probably Asar. Yeah, and look say. at and athleticism is a, a broad range of things, right? Like it's it's yeah, it's kind of an unfair, overarching question to ask at times. But like these are both guys who are. I, I, I think Asar is a little bit uh, twitchier and more explosive. Is what I would say. And, and look, if the athleticism is close and they're both super raw and neither of them are proven off ball guys or even contributors in the half court, like I tend to think that Asar is closer to where I would have Koulibaly in my range than I do to where his twin brother Amen is because Amen is just so twitchy and so athletic yeah. and such a good live dribble passer that you are taking him in the top five or six saying, I'm going to take that guy and I'm going to teach him and I'm going to turn him into an unstoppable threat. Like that's what yeah. you can turn a man Thompson into with a jump shot. So uh, yeah, I'm not as high on a SAR. I haven't made an adjustment to my big board yet, but he's going to be moving down a few spots. Yeah. You're going to end up with him at like 10. I feel like I already have him at 10, Sam. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to end up with him quite low. I, look, I, I have a SAR a little bit higher. Like I'm, I, I am generally a fan of Sar Thompson, um, but I think people are overlooking some a things, lot. I guess a lot. is what I would say. I just again, um, I, I always learn by the playoffs. Right, you draft for playoff success. In my mind, I'm not seeing a lot of non-shooters out there. I'm just not. It's a good point. It's a really good point. Would you rather Kobe Buffkin or Sar Thompson? think kobe like i just like i knew that would be a fun question for you i think kobe yeah i want guys who can shoot yeah look i have them fairly close i have them within three spots of one another um hmm, interesting very interesting uh do you have any other questions you want to ask me before we go that I want to ask you. Oh boy, no, I didn't bring my fifty cent list of twenty one questions all about us. Yeah, uh, fair enough. But I, I think in this entire conversation about these raw athletic wings that I, I consistently struggle with, like I guess my question for you is like, what is where do you find the exception to the rule? Right? Where is it that a guy's tools are so tantalizing or the the impact that he can provide defensively is so immense that you are willing to overlook not being in love with him as a, a floor spacer and a jump shooter. Yeah. So first and foremost, I want guys that can defend. Uh, it's why I like Asar Thompson yep. quite a bit. Asar is a very good defender. Koulibaly, I think, will probably be a good defender. Uh, is a very good defender right now. I think can be like genuinely great defensively. Um, so, so let's talk about the guys that y- you specifically care about here. Sure. So like yep. Jordan Walsh, Julian Phillips, Rayon Repair, uh, who else? Bilal Koulibaly. Um, I would probably throw CD Sissoko and Leonard Miller in that range in, in that conversation. I think Leonard's more of a big, so let's remove him. Okay. I think that's, I think that's fair. Uh, let me cover my bases here and see if there's anybody 
else that I would want to throw into Do, that. do you want to throw oh. like Kobe Brown into this I, mix? Maybe. I was going to say Omax Prosper. Um, Omax is a good one to throw into the mix, yeah? Yeah, I think that's probably it for me, right? So, Walsh, so, Phillips. Oh, well, do you think Noah Clowney's more of a big too? I think he's more of a big. Yeah. Um, so here, here's what, how I would answer that. I think Ricky Council is a sneaky one to throw into this mix as well. I actually quite like Ricky. Um, I think what I would say is I want some proven track record that there is potential to shoot. Julian Phillips made 38% from three in his AAU games last year for Upward Stars in 2021, summer of 2021, I guess, so two years ago. And then made 36% for three for Link Academy as a high school senior. He completely overalled his mechanics in a way that does not make sense to me. Uh, we've talked about that before on this show. Yeah. He uh, he hit 81% from the foul line this year, though. There's clearly real inherent touch in there. He has a track record of having made shots before. I have Phillips at like... 30, 29, 28, so, something in that ballpark, essentially, on my board. Uh, I, I'm i intrigued by Julian Phillips because I think he can shoot. Jordan Walsh is different. Jordan Walsh hasn't really shown much shooting uh, success. Yeah. Yeah. I think his shot prep actually looks quite good, which worries me even more. I don't think that the fixes are going to be easy for him. I just worry that like he might not have touch as a shooter. And with Walsh, the other point that's worth considering is the other guy worth throwing in here, by the way, is probably Anthony Black. Speaking of this, by the way, with Walsh, if you look at Arkansas's offensive numbers this year, they fell off a cliff when Jordan Walsh was off the court. Like they were like nine points worse per hundred possessions when Jordan Walsh was off the court offensively. And it's because of his processing ability. He's a really fast processor of basketball, which given the fact that he's actually a little bit bigger than a lot of these guys, like he has like an eight, 10, eight, 11 standing reach. Like his length is a real factor here. It makes me think you can probably get away with playing him at the four more. Yep, and like, I agree. he's big enough. I have a top 40 grade on Jordan Walsh. Now I'm at that point. Me too. That's kind of the difference, though, I guess. Like, do you think somebody can shoot or do you think that they have real processing ability? If they don't, I'm probably going to be a little bit lower at the end of the day. Like Jalen Clark, I love Jalen Clark on defense. I don't really think he can shoot and I don't know how he thinks the game yeah. on offense. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like a couple other wings like this. Well, what, what about... Uh... Look, I think the feel conversation is a good one, right? Like Walsh definitely has some playmaking feel where he can just make connect. He makes winning plays. It's the way that I describe it with Jordan. Yeah. He and like understands how to space. Yeah. Like he, he's really smart. Yeah. He gets offensive rebounds. He hustles. He knows when to cut more intuitively. Um, yeah. Rayon Repair, for example, grew up playing guard position a little bit more. CD Sissoko grew up playing with the ball in his hands a little bit more. 
if those guys don't shoot it, does that swing you a little bit more? Just that they have this intuitive feel or, or can do more as they skill develop their hand. Well, and it's, it's funny. If, if you look through the NBA right now, the guys that have found success, despite not being able to shoot, do tend to be the guys that grew up as guards. Yeah. Like Bruce Brown was a point guard for yep. BABC on the AAU circuit. And then, um, you know, played point at times at Miami and everything. Gary Payton, the second was a point guard yep. in college at Oregon state. Right. So like that track record, I think is quite valuable. It is why I've seen Soko is like a slight level ahead of these guys. Um, just a little bit like, look, I've CD at like 24 or so, something like that. I'll I, live with know. that. Welcome to the good side, brother. Yeah, like I'm I'm not like 100% in, but I'm intrigued enough uh, with it. The, uh, the other piece of the puzzle here, though, is that the thing that we've seen in the playoffs as well is that smaller players can't play in the playoffs. Really undersized guys, yeah. Or physically Even, weaker guys, yeah. So, yeah, like Nick Smith is a guy that I've been struggling with. Like He's Nick sneaky long. He's sneaky long. He's thin. Sort of. But he's like I'm guessing long. he's like a. I'm guessing Nick Smith has like a six nine, six ten wingspan, something like that, right? That's that's real length if you're going to be a, a two guard. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Like he probably has like a plus five wingspan is yeah. what I would guess. Um, but he's so skinny. Yes, he is. Like so am I. can't hold his ground at all. Is the problem like? Jordan Poole, Tyler Hero, these guys like that, like they can't hold their ground. Like they really struggle, it feels like. Uh, Keontae George, like his tape, like sneaky, he gets like blown through through his chest like more often than what I recognized the first time watching. I, I moved Keontae down like quite a bit, yeah. to be honest. Um, yeah, I, it is hard. It, it's quite hard. Yeah, I just, I, I keep what thinking. I will, what I'll say about this, sorry to cut you off, but like <laughs> what I'll say about this too is like, I'm looking through my board right now. I have no player, it looks like. What did Anthony Black weigh in at the combine as? Let's see. While, while we're talking here. Uh, Anthony Black at the Combine weighed in at, oh, where are you, Anthony Black? Where did you go? Okay, he weighed in at 210. So, yeah, I have no player in my top, let's see here, in my top, no, I have two players in my top. 22 that weigh under 190 pounds. And I think that like 16 of the 22 or no, like 17 of the 22 weigh over like 205. Yeah. And are all six, five or taller. Like the smallest guys I have are case and Wallace Love Scoot, him. obviously, Love and then him. Buffkin. Love yeah. Him. Yeah, that's fair. But like, I, 
I'm like out on like these smaller guys. Like I'm not real interested in them. <laughs> I love that the draft comes right after the NBA playoffs because it should it should serve as a reminder for what wins, for what yeah. gets you to where you want to be. And it's either insanely talented players, the guys we've been talking about who carry you to a championship, or it's the right role players who don't get played off the floor on the offensive end for not being able to shoot or mm-hmm. the defensive end for not being able to physically hold their ground. Mm-hmm. I, I really struggle with these athletic slashing, non-shooting raw wings. Like I just, I do, I want yeah. to feel the, the playmaking and at least enough processing to, to get by if they're not shooting in some regard. And I'm not there on Koulibaly. I'm not. I'm sorry. Here, here's here's the other one. Where are you on Kaysen Wallace? I'm still very high on Kaysen Wallace. I'm struggling with Kaysen a little bit more. Okay. He is a defense first prospect prospect that is six foot two and a half. Mm-hmm. How many of those guys exist in the NBA right now? It's a it's a it is thin road for him. It is, but I think he's got it. I just think he's got it. Mental makeup, understanding of how to play. Two to one assist to turnover, playing with the ball in his hands, second half of the year. Forty percent from three as a catch and shoot guy the first half of the season before they gave him the keys to the offense. I like his offense a hell of a lot more than I think he gets credit for. A little bit square as a mover in times. He is smaller, but he's strong. I think he's strong enough physically to hold his ground, and he's such a smart team defender that he'll find ways to hold it against you if you try to pick on him. I think so, too. I think he's strong enough, and I think that like it's really hard to drive through his chest. It really depends on how good you think he can be offensively. I think he will be fine defensively. I think he's one of the few. I just think he needs to be very good on offense for it to work. I think of him, I, I've been saying him, he's Pat Beverly who on defense and who Pat Beverly thinks he is on offense. Oh like, my goodness. That's, that's Casey Wallace. Yeah, no, that's true. Okay. Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Let's get out of here. Let's get you to bed because you need to go to sleep. It's very late for you. So, Thank you again, Sam, for having me on. This is a really fun, actually fascinating conversation to be able to have tonight. Uh, people can find me on my Twitter account at one underscore or my Substack page, theboxandone.substack.com. Got a few of these non-shooting, raw athletic wing scouting reports coming out this week. And as we're recording this right now, about eight hours from now, nine hours from now, Bilal Koulibaly's full written scouting report will be released. So uh, very appropriate timing for the conversation on us here. A lot of fun. Uh, Let's do it again next week. Yeah, we will definitely do this again next week. I'm super excited to talk about all of this again next week. Uh, And this is just a great comment to close it out on. It's funny to me how Coach Spin seems so monotones in his videos. (laughs) And then you see him on camera and he's super expressive and charismatic. Hot take. Guy that like coaches high school basketball at least to have, has to have something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a face for radio, but I'm glad the expressions are making their way through the screens. Yeah, that's it. Uh, okay, 
I will have some stories like with some of the writers over at the athletic talking about potential things that are topics across the NBA draft later this week, the draft guide will be out next week at some point. Um, I'm going to try to do a few team specific big boards over at the athletic as well. And just kind of showcase how, what I would do for certain teams is probably drastically different than what I would do for like a general big board. Right. Uh, Like my big board for the Pistons is probably drastically different than what my big board looks like in general. Right. So all of that is true. All of that is coming soon. We will be back on Wednesday after game three of the NBA finals to talk about everything that's happening. I'll talk to Schindler about some NBA draft stuff as well, probably as we get more news and notes. I might talk to Schindler about the idea of promises because they're driving me crazy. The fact that people across like the draft sphere think that like 10 players have promises right now. Uh, There probably are a couple. I think there's one that uh, do not say who it is. I've thrown you my speculative idea. Uh, I think there is one right now that nobody's talking about uh, that people are doing a really good job of. But I think that generally the ones that you hear about are probably not the ones that actually happen, which is always fascinating to try and understand uh, how that happens uh, and how these things get talked about. And the reason that I tend not to talk about them is because a, the ones that tend to get out, unless it's the thunder, the thunder, for whatever reason, their promises tend to get out. I don't understand why they do such a good job of literally everything else secretively in their organization. And somehow the fact that they like campaign Alexei Pokashevsky, Mitch McGarry was another one, by the way, like, oh, Josh Houston too, right? Houston. I don't know if we knew Houston's pre-draft off the top of my head, but Houston had the weird thing where he agreed to be in the G league for a year and everything. Um, very strange. But what I would say is like the ones that you tend to find out about publicly are the ones that I get skeptical about actually coming to fruition, I guess, uh, which is why I tend not to promise or tend not to talk about promises. Um, Cause I'm just like, not sure how much of it is bullshit and how much of it is actually real. Um, and unless you're giving me a specific team, like I, I want a specific team on promises otherwise like what are you talking about <laughs> uh but i'll probably talk to mark a little bit about that on the show on wednesday and yeah i think that's all about until next time we'll talk soon